Digital Dissection, a nerd podcast, can at times contain adult language and themes. It is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Digital Dissection podcast, where we take a closer and possibly unnecessary look at our favorite properties, creators, and topics. We are your humble hosts, Joe and Mark. Two pop culture nerds dedicated to telling entertainment history before it's forgotten too soon. Join us on Facebook, Twitter, and our blog for more information on the show. We also love to hear from you, so why not write us at digitaldissectionpodcast at gmail.com. And now that we've got that out of the way, let's get to dissecting. Back pop culture nerds, the digital dissection. We get to speak with some wonderful humans on this program, but today's guest is noticeably recognized for her ability to portray a non-human. She's the voice of Gladys from the immensely popular Portal series, and she's coming off of universal acclaim for her role in Night Mother. We welcome Ellen McLean. How are we doing, Ellen? Well, I'm doing very well. Thank you, Mark. And thank you, Joe. I'm very pleased oh, to be oh, here speaking with you, too. Yes, it is wonderful to have you. I, I appreciate you being able to carve some time out for us. I know we've been chasing you for a little bit. Um, so it's it's really great to to hear from you and, and get to hear a little bit more. So, But really quick, we'd like to start our conversations, Ellen, a little bit earlier in the lives of our guests. And this is because we like to to understand a little bit of what uh, maybe the A&E biography might cover, right? We're going to we're going to go back a little ways before we get into uh, some of <laughs> some of the the roles you might have played here. But here's something I was curious about, Ellen, from day one, when we were reaching out and trying to uh, to connect with you. The Internet seems to not know a whole lot about Ellen McLean, you know, before she came to Seattle, you know, some of the some of the before days here. And we're trying to understand a little bit about, you know, when, when you were a kid coming up and trying to understand a little more about Ellen McLean then, you know, where we grew up and, you know, what we were kind of uh, focusing on in our, our young, young days. Well, I'm from Nashville, Tennessee. That's where, that's where I grew up, but I did uh, go away to school um, Pretty early on, I I went to uh, the North Carolina School of the Arts when I was 15 uh, to study music and in particular singing. And of course, that's my earliest. I've just always wanted to be a singer, always wanted to sing. So it's from singing that I got into acting and, uh, you know, acting in shows, in musicals. And then uh, it's because of my husband, John Patrick Lowry, that I got a voice demo in 2002 because I had just been doing music theater and opera and that was plenty. And John had been doing uh, computer game work already, voices for computer games. And he said, oh, Ellen, just get a demo. So I did. But the the early days, uh, Mark and Joe uh, singing, singing. And I was one of those little kids who took years and years of piano lessons. And I'm a terrible piano player, <laughs> but it did help my musicianship so that I was always able to teach myself my own music. You know, I could always play it on the piano. And, sure. uh, and I still do that. And of course, I teach voice all the time. I've been teaching voice for over 30 years. Uh, not over 30 oh. years. Let's see. 87, 97, 07. Yeah. 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 Like 35 years I've been teaching voice. And, and now, you know, since the pandemic, I've been teaching voice on Zoom calls, which is surprisingly effective. I've really yeah. sort of, oh. you know, got it worked out so that um, I am a help to my students, even through Zoom. <laughs> 
that, that's saying <laughs> something so you would sort of distortion may happen because uh, if someone has a bad wi-fi connection like how how that could make this whole process difficult having to teach voice over the internet well there is a time lag and uh mm -hmm. how i deal with that is um i i can't play for the student when students would come to our condo i would always do the playing and over zoom you can't do that so my voice students have have uh had to become independent on their own pianos or keyboards and they play all their own mm -hmm. vocalises and they play their song uh material and uh with most well actually all of my young voice students uh well all of them we we all work on uh italian repertoire they have to sing in italian so uh they have to be able to play their at least the melody of their songs and the wi-fi connection has been good enough but I'll tell you, there is, I have one student who's studying with me now from Minneapolis and she's, uh, she studied with me 20 years ago when I, when I taught at an arts college here in Seattle. And so she's a returning student, but she's in Minneapolis now and the time lag is longer. It really does. It takes longer to go up to the satellite and come all, you know, from Minneapolis and then come all the way back down to Seattle. And, you know, we've, I've got a lesson with her tomorrow and you get used to it. Yeah. It's like, I will, right. I will play a chord and wait <laughs> and she'll hear the chord and then she'll <laughs> sing something. So, so, mm -hmm. you know, it's not instantaneous, but, but you just get used to it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, taking things uh, back just, uh, just a bit here, you had mentioned that like you'd grown up in Nashville, but then ended up going to North Carolina at the age of 15. Was this like a family decision to move or was there some sort of moment of rebellion and your parents like, no, young lady, you're going to North Carolina boarding school for music. No, I think it's mainly that my parents kicked me out. <laughs> no, really, uh, because the North Carolina School, it, it's now called the University of North Carolina School of the Arts, but, but it's also mm -hmm. high school. And uh, my mother had found out about a summer program through another mother you know another mother and my sister mm -hmm. rebecca uh became a professional dancer but she was a dancer i was a singer we went over to the school and auditioned and did a summer program well my sister was so good at dance that they wanted her to stay for the regular school session so she stayed mm -hmm. for her junior year in high school well, mm -hmm. I wanted to do everything that Becky did. So I went back to Nashville and, you know, did my sophomore year at Hillsborough High School in Nashville, public high school. But I was working toward another audition because I wanted to go to the School of the Arts in the regular school year as well, because Becky was doing it. So my parents actually didn't kick us out. We wanted to go to this art school and my mm -hmm. sister got in first and then I had to, I had to do it too. Ah, uh, yes. You know, the feeling as a younger sibling, the need to chase and do things similar to the older one. Oh, yes. That's definitely alive and well. Yes. Mm -hmm. But this wouldn't be the only time you would, you would, uh, study away because didn't you go to college uh, in Boston? Well, yes, well? I stayed. I stayed at the School of the Arts for four years. So two years high school, mm -hmm. two years college. And then my best friend, Albert Williams, uh, God rest his soul. He was an organist and a harpsichord player. 
And he mm -hmm. was going to go to New England Conservatory to study with Mireille Lagasse, who was a very famous organ teacher. And he said, oh, Ellen, you should audition for New England. So I made a tape. I didn't apply anyplace else. I just made a tape because Albert was going and they accepted me. And I, I got the most wonderful voice teacher named Barbara Wallace, who is mm -hmm. alive and well and living in Vermont. And she's in her 90s, right. wonderful voice teacher. And Albert and I got an apartment in Boston and lived together for the first year. We, we got other roommates later on, but, you know, Albert, mm -hmm. Albert was my entree to the New England Conservatory and a great friend, really a great friend, Albert. I, now, if I remember correctly, didn't one of your teachers also kind of help you, uh, uh, pay tuition while you were there or kind of cover your, your stay at the well, conservatory? Well, uh, I, I um, won scholarships uh, at New England. And uh, one of the, actually, she was a trustee, Mrs. H.S. Payson Rowe, very old Boston family. And she was a trustee at New England Conservatory, and she gave a vocal scholarship every year. And um, I received that. It was a full, uh, full scholarship, and I received that scholarship uh, my last year in undergraduate. And then I knew if I stayed and got my master's degree, that Mrs. Rowe would pay for it. So I stayed at New England and got my master's degree in music, you know, primarily in voice. And it was opera. I was studying mm -hmm. opera. That's that's what I was working on. But, mm -hmm. um, but the other thing, my voice teacher, Barbara Wallace, got me a church job. So uh, she sang with King's Chapel Choir, which was a very famous choir. But one of the young musicians that she knew was a man named David Carney, who started a choir at St. Anthony's Shrine, which was a Catholic church downtown. And Mrs. Wallace had me audition for him. And so I had that church job for four years uh, while I was in Boston. And, you know, I, I swear by church jobs because it's been part of my uh, income ever since I was in college. I've always had a church job. And when John and I moved here in 1989, I got a church job. And I and uh, I was at an Episcopal St. Paul's Episcopal, Episcopal Church, and then I got a job at a Catholic church, and then I got a job at a Presbyterian church, and the Presbyterians uh, paid me to sing for them up until the pandemic, and then when the pandemic started, I said, "No, no, you guys aren't paying me anymore. I'm so old. Don't pay me." But I still, I still sing for the Presbyterians. Yeah. So I'm, I'm ecumenical. <laughs> well, hey, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with being employed. You know, like that's, that's, that's great to have, no. you know, consistent work. <laughs> well, for I, I think for performers, uh, I always call it, you know, cobbling together a living. And, you know, mm -hmm. I, when we first moved here, I, I worked for a singing telegram company and mm -hmm. John and I worked for a company called the Dickens Carolers and we sang Christmas carols and um, I did lecture demonstrations for the Seattle Opera Guild. I would, you know, put together uh hour-long programs of operatic excerpts and I would lecture about opera and and weddings and funerals and you know you just uh sort of do you know besides the shows sure. you know besides getting mm -hmm. cast in a show 
you know, you, you did all sorts of things and teach voice, you know, teach by private voice. And then I worked at Cornish College of the Arts for a while. And, and I also taught for Village Theater's Kids Stage, which is an after school program. I did, I worked for them for 10 years. So, uh, you know, John was right to say, Ellen, get a voice demo, because <laughs> it was just another opportunity mm-hmm. to make a living. You know, this is funny you mentioned this, because uh, we we spoke to a voice actor, Gavin Hammond, uh, a few weeks ago. And a few months before, or actually last year, we also talked to uh, a voice actor for, you know, anime, Kylie Bear. And it seems like everybody kind of pushes someone towards voice acting. <laughs> there's, there's, there's always like a, a conversation that happens and there's a point that goes, you know what, have you ever thought about doing this? And so it's, it's just funny to kind of hear that, that parallel to other journeys that we've heard. Um, and to shift gears for a moment, though, uh, kind of going away from work for a second and kind of going to hobbies, because as you can tell, Joe and I are career nerds over here, but Online sleuths have kind of pointed towards things a couple times, and I just want to verify this. And that's on the topic of photography, because people have mentioned online that you have an interest in it. And we wanted to find out if that was the truth, because we can't really find any photos. We weren't sure if it was real or not. Well, actually, I will tell you that the photographer is John. John (laughs) is, is the photographer, and he was, you know, before cell phones you know it's i take a lot of pictures now but just for my own enjoyment because it's so easy to do it on the cell phone it's just so easy but you know john was the one who had you know all the lenses and the film canisters and and we have lots and lots of slides we could have a slideshow that lasted about 10 years could put everyone to sleep because the the thing that we have always done since we moved out here is we were backpackers and that's one of the reasons that we moved to seattle because uh the hiking is so good around here and of course this was all instigated by john but i was there too with my rucksack on my back no really my you know my rei backpack Mm -hmm. and our Mm -hmm. you know backpacker tent and our sleeping bags and you know our little stove and no serious serious backpacking like you know 10 day trips that kind of thing so uh that but even with that, John would have the camera with him and, and take pictures. But now I take a lot of pictures and just, you know, share them with John and, and, and share them with our, our close friends. So I, I'm, I'm not very good. It's just because <laughs> I have a cell phone. It's easy. But you know what? Honestly, um, I I would trust that you know what you're doing if I saw these photos, okay? No judgment at all. <laughs> but, I take a lot of flowers. Yeah. I like flowers. Yeah. Yeah, why not? I mean, I you know, some mm-hmm. people like to do uh, a, a lot of these like, like photos of animals and stuff like that. But I mean, I imagine a flower is an easier subject to work with. Well, I took a picture of a ladybug. I was out on a walk yesterday at Discovery Park. And Discovery Park is full of Queen Anne's lace. And I saw a beautiful Queen Anne's lace. And there was a ladybug right in the middle of it. So I got really close and took a picture of the ladybug. <laughs> Very nice. Well, just make sure if you do post that photo mm-hmm. to give uh, give credit to the ladybug and, and, and cite it properly because <laughs> you don't want them coming after you. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> well, shifting gears for a moment. Now... Looking at uh, some of your your performance background, now you've actually had some time on Broadway, is that correct? Yes, I did two Broadway shows. And I auditioned for a lot more than that. But when when you're in New York, you know, that's always the dream you want to you want to do a Mm -hmm. show on Broadway. 
And uh, this is an interesting story. And I credit my dear friend, Mary Stout. And Mary Stout and I met in a church job. So I had graduated, you know, with my master's from New England, and I had gone back to Nashville. And I was, you know, living at home for a while. And I got a church job, St. George's Episcopal Church. And uh, another soprano there was Mary Stout. And the wonderful thing about that church job is that Mary and I bonded. And we talk all the time. We're still friends. And Mary's done a lot of Broadway shows. But Mary and I were real know-it-alls. And we both got fired from that job. (laughs) 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 Because... Because we thought we knew better than the music director. Now, a lot of people who know me will think, oh, yeah, that's Ellen. Yeah. (laughs) But so we got fired from St. George's, but we remained great friends. And in 1979, we moved to New York City together. Well, Mary already had her actor's equity card which means that she was a member of the union and she had joined uh, through, through a theater in Florida. And I, I can't remember the name of the theater, but, but that's how she joined equity. So, so we were in New York, we had four different sublet apartments that first year, four different (laughs) sublets, you know, this is the thing actors go out of town and they always want people to sublet their apartment. So we'd sublet one and then they'd come back and we'd have to move to another sublet. And then they'd come back, we'd have to move to another sublet, then they'd come back, etc. But anyway, so Mary was already in the union and Mary had done an audition for production of My Fair Lady, which was going to star Rex Harrison, who had, you know, done the original uh, production with Julie Andrews and then had been in the movie and won the Oscar for Best Actor for uh, My Fair Lady for playing Professor Henry Higgins. So anyway, Mary had gotten a call back for this Broadway production, and she said, Ellen, you should go. Well... I wasn't in the union, and the rule was, and still is, that if this was a union audition, you couldn't audition for it, you didn't have your union card. And Mary said, I said, Mary, I can't do it. And she said, no, do it anyway, come anyway, come with me. So I went down to this, you know, studio, downtown New York, and, and Mary said, Give your picture and resume to the stage manager of the auditions. And I did. And it just so happened that there was a man in the audition who was one of Alan Lerner's assistants, Stone Whitney of New York. And I had just auditioned for another show. Stone Whitney the week before, and he remembered me. And he said, yep, this kid is good. You should see her. Well, they had me come into the room and, and, you know, sing eight bars, eight bars of music. And I did my eight bars of music, and they said, yes, Ellen, stay. I stayed for the callback, and um, and I got asked, and all because of my friend Randy Stout, of course, didn't get cast, but she is such a wonderful person. She was so happy for me, and that's how I got my actor's equity card, because I got cast in this uh, national tour, which was then going to go to Broadway of her lady and I was a chorus and all because of my friend Mary Stout who's still my friend who's just who's doing she's doing a production a production of Steel Magnolias at a theater in Fort Worth in Texas still working we're still working but that you know that was 
the wonderful thing that friend Mary did. So that was my first Broadway show. And then the Broadway show lasted two weeks, and it was with Peggy Lee. And Peggy Lee is for the, the song Fever. Give me fever, fever in the morning, fever, you know, however that song goes. And, and, uh, and I was the understudy for the three female backup singers, so I had to know all their parts. But it was another Broadway show at the Lunt Fontaine, and it lasted two weeks and closed. <laughs> and I have interesting stories from that experience. <laughs> so, you know, you guys ask interesting questions. I've never told those stories in an interview. <laughs> oh. <laughs> we we kind of pride ourselves mm -hmm. on that, honestly, because we, we do like mm -hmm. to dig deep. You know, we want to we want to ask you about the stuff that hopefully, you know, you either haven't answered in a long time or have never answered. So we we appreciate never. Nobody never talked about yeah. that. I have stories about Rex Harrison too. Very interesting person. God rest his soul. <laughs> is is any of it under NDA, or are you able to to talk about that now? <laughs> well, it's you know, Rex Harrison at the time. Um, you know when he did the original production of My Fair Lady, um, that was in fifty seven. Think fifty-seven or fifty-eight, something like that. And, and he had never sung, and uh, they just decided that he was a good choice for Henry Higgins. And of course, he was fabulous, and he was a wonderful, wonderful actor, really a wonderful actor. But you know, he was doing this show in eighty and eighty-one with a whole bunch of youngsters, you know, one of them, me. And uh, I remember when we were in L.A., in L.A., uh, he took several, you know, he took everybody for dinner. Uh, he was very gracious. And we went out to a very fancy restaurant, Mr. Harrison, and a bunch of Cora kids. And it wasn't me. But one of Horace boys set the table on fire. <laughs> and, and everybody is fanning flames. And, you know, it was because of a can. And, but just because we were, you know, greenhorns. And poor Mr. Harrison is dealing with all of these children and he was 74 at the time and i i know how he felt because i'm 69 now it's like yeah if i went out for dinner with a bunch of kids and one of them on fire i'd be a little nonplussed <laughs> but but you know wonder wonderful story very wonderful story well, but tell you what to to, to kind of piggyback off of performance for a moment here it'll actually lead us to our first uh one of our first fan questions that we have for you so uh what our fans want to know do you have a preference between singing styles and are there styles that you haven't tried but want to experiment with i've sung pretty much every kind of music um i i've had to of course, the one that I've studied the most and and uh, feel the most confident with is is opera, and then music theater. But I've sung country and I've sung rock. I've sung folk music. Uh, John and I, I, I think you, you know this. We were just in Sweden and uh, at a convention Nercon, which is the the biggest uh, Scandinavian uh, gamer convention, and I had to learn a song in Swedish, "Guldet Blave Tilsant," which was actually written by Bjorn and Benny, the two guys in ABBA. They they've written a lot of 
music other than ABBA. And uh, I had to learn that song for the opening ceremonies, which was which was lots of fun. And uh, I mean, it's it's really you know music theater uh, style, but it was in Swedish. This is the first time I've sung Swedish. So, does that answer your question? Yeah, I would say um, music theater in Swedish was not a place that our fans thought you would go. So that, <laughs> that's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> very nice well kind of rounding out the uh some of the the pre voice acting you know work and i say that kind of loosely because technically this does kind of fold into voice acting a little bit is actually your time as a radio dj uh alongside john and yeah so i i, I wanted to ask you about that because not because this is a radio show necessarily but it's it's more to understand some of that foundation and what kind of happened inside the booth, you know, like, can you just kind of walk us through a little bit of your time as a DJ? Well, it's because uh, John was working on his doctorate in music at Indiana University in Bloomington. And uh, we both auditioned at WFIU which is the NPR affiliate in Bloomington. And, you know, this was, this was a classical radio station then. I'm not sure. You know, like, we, we also started at KUOW here in Seattle, but that was after we left Indiana. And uh, KUOW was a classical station, but now it's, it's news and information. So they, but at WFIU, we were spinning records. We were we were you know putting the LPs on the turntable and setting it down, and back timing the recordings, and because everything has to time it on radio. Because what you don't want is dead air. Dead air not happen. And uh, while we were there. Um, you know, you're alone in the studio spinning records. CDs were just coming in. So we had a few of those, and CDs were great because CDs had every track timed. So it made it very easy to figure out, you know, when the track was going to be over. You know, you had to front announce and back announce and... Uh, read the weather, read the news. Uh, John worked on election night, and he did election coverage, reading the returns from the polls. Um, it was a great job. It was a great job to have. Uh, as I was a student spouse, and we lived in married student housing. Uh, Hepburn lived in Hepburn, C-117, and it looked like a no-tell motel is what it looked like. <laughs> and it was two rooms, cinder block, and hot as hell. And the, you walked into the living room, and then between the living room and the bedroom, there was like a little counter kitchen. And then the bathroom, and then you had the bedroom. And it was hot as hell. And that's where we lived for two years. And and I would have a bicycle, and I would ride over to the radio station. And uh, a person I liked working with, and I'm blocking his name. It's horrible. But he was the longtime opera director at Indiana University. And he had uh, a program where he would uh, talk about a particular opera and play excerpts, but he always had one of the young announcers uh, spin the records for him because he didn't want to bother with that. So that was the only time I'd actually be in the studio with somebody, and he was so wonderful. <laughs> 
we had jokes at the radio station. And of course, we had a phone line to the outside and people would call us, you know, if we'd play something that they liked, they'd call us up. We had regular callers who would call while we were playing something. And I remember one time uh, I was playing a piece of music by Carl Maria Ditters von Dittersdorf. And he was a classical composer, very forgettable. And I remember that I did an announcement. You know, you'd pick some pieces because they were the right length. And if I was coming up to, a you know, an hour or a half hour break where I would have have to announce the station. I'd have to have, you know, a little piece just the length. So I put on some Carl Maria Ditters von Ditters, and I said in my announcement, the very famous classical composer and one of my favorites, Carl Maria Ditters von Dittersdorf. And I put it on and I immediately got a phone call <laughs> from this opera director. Because he liked my joke. <laughs> so, but John and I, you know, worked at the station for two years. And then uh, the news director of the station loved John. Just loved John. Didn't like me so much, but loved John. So she wrote us a fabulous letter of recommendation. So we moved, when we moved to Seattle in 89, uh, we, we started to work KUOW, and we were, by that point, weren't playing records anymore. Two years later, you weren't playing records anymore. It was all CDs. And we were the night shift. We were 11 p.m. to like 6 a.m. And we worked overnight at, at KUOW. So we, we did a lot of radio. And it paid abysmally, but it paid something. <laughs> well, as long as it helped keep the lights on, that's the important part. So uh, we have gone through your your career in radio, and I think this is probably a good time to transition into your voice acting career. You'd mentioned before that your husband uh, was your... The, the, the key motivator to pushing you to finally make a demo tape. Before that, did you uh, have any other idea or any other um, aspirations to join voice acting? Well, um, I did a gig with a guy named Jim French in like 98. Mm -hmm. And Jim French was a local radio personality and had, you know, radio shows. And he had a company called Imagination Theater and he produced radio drama. Well, I had a gig with him for the radio enthusi enthusiasts of Puget Sound Convention. And I was asked to sing some golden age songs like Gershwin, Cole Porter, Irving Berlin, mm -hmm. and Jim accompanied me. Well, I knew who Jim was, so I took one of John's demo cassette tapes. They were on, you had to get them on cassette tape to give to people. Mm -hmm. I took one of John's demo cassette tapes to the gig, and I gave it to Jim French, and I said, you know, my husband is a voice actor because John was all, you know, John had an agent and John was already doing computer games uh, for Humongous and Sierra Online, etc. And I thought, well, radio drama, he's a shoe in and John's a wonderful actor. So Jim listened to this cassette tape and hired him. And then, you know, hired me too. So even before I got a voice demo, uh, Jim French was hiring us as actors for these radio dramas. 
And he had a series called The Further Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. And he had another uh, series called Harry Nile, who is a gumshoe detective. And uh, then, you know, standalone radio dramas. And uh, Jim wrote many of them and uh, other writers. And it's it's interesting that we worked with Jim for 20 years uh, and then he passed away in his late 80s. And uh, John and his partner, Larry Albert, uh, got permission from Jim's heirs and took over the company. And so they had to re reincorporate, et cetera. And it's called Oral Vision but they have the whole Jim French Imagination Theater Library. And I'm on a lot. I'm, I'm on several hundred shows uh, of, you know, the Sherlock Holmes stories and Harry Nile and, you know, a bunch of, a bunch of others, uh, um, that I can't think of right now, but that's easy to find out. You just have to go to harrynile.com. Harry, the guy's name, Nile like the river.com. And there are hundreds of radio dramas that you can download and listen to. And I'm on a bunch of them. So I had done that work before John convinced me to get a voice demo. All right. Yeah, and yeah, it, that, I mean, that's... it's not a joke. It's extensive. I, I've had a chance to comb through it here. And yes. when when uh, when Ellen and I first connected, you know, earlier this year, I was I actually went there first because I I saw a couple of your posts with it, and I I just couldn't believe that 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 was sitting there the whole time. You know, because I a big fan of Sherlock Holmes. I didn't even know these properties existed. And it was really cool that your producers were able to go out and grab uh, not only the permission to have these properties, but just the sheer amount of them uh, that are there. Oh, so it's, yeah. it's it's really it's really cool. If you haven't checked it out, I mean, we'll we'll link it here in our in our show well, description you. for folks to look at. Um, but but getting getting to what, what some folks um, have obviously come to know you for throughout the years, if it's the the character of Gladys in Portal or Glados, however you want to pronounce it phonetically, and one of the questions I always had for you here that I was thinking about was in, in some of the, uh, the folks who've interviewed you before, we've mentioned this process of becoming, you know, one with the character and trying to take on some of the emotions of that character, right? That transference effect. How is that possible for you with an AI character? How do you end up finding out who that AI non-human entity is and and figuring out those emotions well it you know it took a while and i i think uh you know for portal for the first one i was really just trying to do what the writers and uh, you know eric wolpaw and and jay pinkerton were asking me to do and and sort of uh through Bill Van Buren, because Bill Van Buren mainly directed me. And so I was just trying to do what, what they asked me to do. But I feel like when we got into Portal 2, I really had made uh, more decisions about the character. And I, and I think poor GLaDOS is lonely. She's lonely, and uh, and I think she really likes uh, the player, you know, Chell, yeah, the avatar for the player. But I think Glados really likes the player, and uh, and wants that interaction, even though sometimes the player gets killed. <laughs> uh, that. I, I I don't think that's that's not the motivation. The motivation is the testing and the interaction with the player, which is fun for GLaDOS. 
and and GLaDOS is very lonely without the player. And it seemed very clear to me that after the first one, where the player kills GLaDOS and she's, you know, sort of put on ice for a long time, that finally when the player turns up again, you know, we're a lot alike, you and I. You tested me. I tested you. You killed me. I... Oh, wait a minute. I guess I haven't killed you yet. Well, food for thought, you monster. <laughs> so I think GLaDOS is really hurt. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've I've always loved, and I'm not sure if you had as much fun saying this line, where you said, uh, we... I think you said we both said some things that you are going to regret. <laughs> That's right. I love that line. Yes. <laughs> no matter no matter how many times I've heard that, I I laugh every time. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> it's it's like yeah, it's like the ultimate married person line to say during an argument, right? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, that's why, you know, my husband teases me and he always likes to say that I'm perfect for GLaDOS because I'm passive aggressive. <laughs> so, I you will know, say we that. have we have our skills, we have our talents. The, the <laughs> passive aggressiveness, while it's absolutely throughout the entire Portal series, it is absolutely showcased on the uh, Poker Night game because... Oh. Oh, that was fun. (laughs) (laughs) I've never They had to teach me how to play poker. (laughs) (laughs) Because I didn't know what any of that meant. Yeah. I, you know, that whole poker night thing. I mean, it was very funny because uh, Claptrap and I had something going on, which I thought was great fun. David, the the voice actor. But those fellows who I recorded that with, you know, they flew me down to San Francisco to make the recordings. They had to teach me about the game. I I don't play poker. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it it could have fooled me because, I mean, I played that game for many, many hours. And I, I, I just, when you say passive aggressive, it's like, you obviously you captured Gladys perfectly from, you know, from, from the main series, there's something about being prodded while you're playing poker like that. And you're getting, you're getting just uh, small insults. They're always well delivered. And when you're, when you're playing it for hours upon hours, like I, I'm sitting there, I lose a hand and I'm like, yep, this one stings a little bit more than it probably would have. Cause you, you always get something <laughs> great to say after a loss. And so, mm-hmm. it, I mean, I played a lot of organized sports. And so for me, trash talk isn't all that crazy, but it's when someone is able to get under your skin in the worst possible way. <laughs> Gladys is, is perfect for that, especially in poker night. And Thank so you. I, I loved that. I loved it. It was, it was, <laughs> it was, it was great, but it was also at times frustrating and I loved every minute of it. So. Well, uh, well, fantastic. just, you know, don't play mm-hmm. poker with me, Ellen, because <laughs> I don't don't understand the game. That's something I always kind of thought about though. Since, since it's an AI character, right? Is it really so much being sadistic or is it really the AI serving out programming at that point? Right? Like uh, GLaDOS isn't sadistic. No, 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 no. She, she's, she's programmed to test she's pro, you know for science she's she's programmed to figure things out and she reads reports mm-hmm. and you know it it says here that you're a horrible person you know something but i'm not just saying that it's it's <laughs> here in black and white you are a horrible person or a terrible person i can't remember which one it is but both you're horrible yeah. and terrible <laughs> and and you also say I didn't even know we tested for that. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> well, this this is a good another good segue though because mm-hmm. part of me knows or at least in some of the performances I've done, Joe's done some performing arts himself. There's always a little bit of you in the character, right? It's hard to Oh, parse of course. That out. Well, yeah. I th- I think uh to be an honest actor uh, I believe one must use parts of oneself. 
I think so. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're just putting on a costume. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, Which, how much then, if you like, you, uh, like you said, part of oneself has been there. How much of you do you think is in Glados at this point? How much of that character uh, do you think is as successful as it was because you played her? Well, I don't know about that, but the but the things about Glados, I I identify with her loneliness, and I think mm-hmm. anybody who's been on the planet has experienced loneliness, and I identify with her loneliness, and and uh, that makes me empathize with her, and she's judgmental, <laughs> you know, she is judgmental, and and says things like well you should be able to do this well you probably can't do this but <laughs> but you know if you follow my direction you know kill it uh, this is the line i love killing you and giving you good advice aren't mutually exclusive <laughs> well on the topic of working remotely and and you mentioned earlier how the way that you teach folks with music has changed in singing but so has the the world of entertainment because you had a chance to participate in the uh, Twitch driven adaptation of night mother, which I got to say, I, I I'm actually kind of astounded that um, more folks haven't tried to adapt like award-winning properties into these Twitch performances because you, you see them all the time when it comes to uh, playing like board games and video games. Right. But seeing a production like night mother adapted into this this twitch format was really kind of stunning in, in well that in was ways. all sheila Houlihan. that was mm-hmm. all sheila mm-hmm. and sheila is young <laughs> and uh she when the pandemic started she had been down in la and she moved back to seattle because nothing was happening in la so as she said you know why have an apartment in la when nothing's going on so she wrote me and she said let's just work on something and so I looked at you know two women's scripts and I thought the one that worked the best for us to work on was Night Mother and so we started working on it on Zoom and and work on the play together just reading the parts the mother and the daughter and sometime while we were doing this Sheila said you know, we should do this on Twitch. And I said, well, how would we do that? Well, she worked it all out. Sheila did it. Yeah. So that we, we have Sheila to thank for that. Yeah. Um, Sheila, you know, Mm -hmm. besides being a wonderful actor, Sheila is a producer too. And she, you know, contacted all the people she needed to contact and and uh got us a director of photography uh trevor and uh then you know got my husband john to direct us he john's a wonderful director and she got it all set up and and uh in it was in september just you know this September last that that we did it live live I I've I've never been so nervous and I'm someone who performs live all the time yeah but because of performing live with all of this technology I was on our laptop here just you know in that room And Sheila was in Bellevue, which is across the lake. And we did it live. So it was, it was, uh, I never would have done that without Sheila. I mean, you know, I, I, my motto is say yes to life. So I've said yes to a lot of things that I have no idea what I'm saying yes to, but it's like, well, if somebody wants me to do something, I'll say yes. Yeah, I, but I Sheila, you, Sheila yeah. made that happen. As much as Sheila made it happen, I mean, you still took home some hardware for your performance uh, as as best actor in a drama from Forty Eight Film. The Webby Awards kind of speak for themselves that the production was was incredible. 
and well, I know I, how yeah. to act, <laughs> but somebody else has to do all the technical stuff for me. I, I just, when I watched it, cause I didn't get to watch it live. Of course, I wish I could have, but when I got to watch it later on in the, uh, the video on demand side of it, I can't imagine how tense it must've been to be in your position, you know, recording it live, let alone me watching it and feeling that tension because of the plot, you know, not because of the, the technology. And so it's, it's a really stunning way to bring the medium to a different place and to see it done in Twitch, I think was really a, a technical marvel because it's, it just hasn't been done yet, or at least it hasn't been done a whole lot. Sheila, <laughs> Sheila Houlihan. You've heard it here first. Mm -hmm. Give Sheila the credit. <laughs> but we, we want folks to watch it because I think it was a, a really, really well done production. And well, uh, I, yeah. uh, we're, we're very proud of it. We are very proud of it. And it's just about an hour long and, um, but it can be triggering because it is yeah. about yes. suicide. Mm -hmm. So people need to be aware of that. Yes. Yes. It, I, I and, and they do a good job too of, of, mentioning some of those things beforehand and, and not to give too much away here because we don't want, uh, we want folks to go watch this, of course, but I, I just wanted to give you credit for uh, how something as simple as gripping the, the bag of like your, your nail, like your nail polish and yeah. all of that. The way you did that sent chills. It just did the, seeing that in the moment. Um, Cause I obviously didn't know it was coming, right? I'd never, seen night mother or any of the uh adaptations before that so just seeing how you you react throughout that process is is stunning so i, I can't wait for other folks to see that um, well but, thank yeah. you thank you mark yeah and tell you what ellen we've reached that point where we can officially say you have survived a digital dissection <laughs> you've been <laughs> you've been a, a wonderful guest we've enjoyed getting to have this journey with you and in the tradition we like to offer the floor to our guests to kind of talk about what's going on in their lives and anything that they would like to shed some light on well um john and i are going to so we were at nercon uh a week ago uh, we're also going to be at a con in South Bend, Indiana, the last weekend in August called, well, it's spelled P-W-R up, but I think it's pronounced power up, but it's four up. But we're going to be at power up in South Bend, Indiana, the last weekend in August. And then over Labor Day weekend, we are going to be guests at PAX West, which is here in Seattle, which is very convenient for us. But we're, we're also going to be with uh, two other actors from the Team Fortress 2 game. So, of course, John is the sniper. I'm the administrator. Robin Atkins Downs is the yes. medic. And Gary Schwartz is the heavy and another character. And so there's there's gonna be a lot of a lot of panels about Team Fortress 2 and so at, at PAX West. So we've got uh we've got those cons coming up and we, we love going to cons. John and I always have so much fun because we're a couple of old fogies. And we get to talk to a lot of nice young people. I mean, I think it's for good reason. You know, when we've talked about this before with, with some of our guests about these experiences, you know, video games have, have shifted a lot since we were kids from, you know, just trying to find the princess in the next castle to fully realized cinematic and thematic experiences. And so games like portal have really helped people find themselves in a lot of ways but have also mesmerized us just from a storytelling standpoint and so that that's what the the thing that we always like to thank our, our creators for and our guests is that you haven't just done a job you know you, you've really mesmerized us and and, and lift us off our feet in a lot of ways and so when it comes to portal uh, obviously we thank you for portal and, and, and glados but 
we thank you just overall for everything you do. So we really do appreciate uh, you sharing your talents with us, Alan. You really do. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> All right, thank well, cool. you. Thank you. I'm, I'm honored that you wanted to speak with me, Mark and Joe. And until next time, keep on dissecting. <laughs> <laughs>